coming up. It's just, it, it's, it's, it's inconceivable that someone could just do that to a person who was just that beautiful and that kind. It was devastating to hear that a child committed this. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson. You're listening to The Daily Crime. A jury returned with their verdict at the end of March in the case of 68-year-old Susan Spiller, who was killed inside her Minneapolis-area home back in July of 2015. It took four years, a fingerprint, and DNA evidence for police to track down a suspect. Susan Spiller's family now says they have justice, nearly seven years after the Minneapolis artist was murdered in her home. Just a few hours ago, a 21-year-old was found guilty of killing Spiller when he was just 14. I'm joined by Lou Raguse, investigative reporter at CARE 11 in Minneapolis. Lou also covers the majority of courts and crime cases in in the area. Lou, thanks for being here with us. Yep, thanks for having me. Lou, take us back to the date of this crime, the original crime back in July of 2015. Susan Spiller was found dead inside her home, right? Yeah, it was July 16th in 2015, and she lived on DuPont Avenue in North Minneapolis, North Minneapolis is the area that does see the most crime. However, this murder was different than the majority of murders that we report on in North Minneapolis. Susan Spiller's house was broken into, and she was murdered in her own bedroom. And right off the bat, there were no suspects. So it was a very unsettling crime, uh, you know, kind of a uh, the rare random crime. And the longer it went without anyone being arrested, the more unsettling it became. And Lou, we'll get into the investigation and what detectives were able to determine and what they found in terms of evidence. But let's talk about her a little bit. She was an artist and a community activist, right? Yeah, especially, I mean, the emphasis on the art. She was, one of her friends told us that she was insanely talented. And just looking at her house, it was a bright blue house that stuck out on the on the street among the others. She's very expressive. She had a, a number of flowers surrounding her, her house and in her yard. And her forte was glass art. So she could create, I mean, you, you, I really can't do it justice with words. You really have to look up photos of it. But her glass art was amazing and she taught classes and sold her glass work at this place called the Warren Artist Habitat. And on top of that, she was involved in the neighborhood. She was on the board of a neighborhood association and was just one of these people that everybody knew. She lived alone. Um, She was 68 years old, but she was somebody that everybody in the neighborhood knew. And so at 68 years old, she is killed inside her home. I'm struck by the medical examiner's findings of her death being the cause of complex homicidal violence. It was clearly a terrible case and a terrible death. Yeah, it was. She was found on her bed, kind of, uh, kind of dangling off of the side of her bed, uh, and her her bed just was soaked in blood. She had been strangled as well as stabbed several times, and so the medical examiner couldn't say whether it was the stabbing or whether it was the strangulation that killed her. And that's why they came up with the complex homicidal violence as the cause of death. And as you said early on, there were no suspects, but eventually fingerprints come into play. Tell us where the investigation led. Well, it was actually her son that that 
figured out that something was wrong. Her her one and only child, her adult son, who then has six child six children of his own, she would watch one of her grandchildren a couple days a week. And so this was a routine. And her son showed up at her house. Uh, she, the door was locked, which caught him off guard because he figured she'd be awake and the door would be open. That's how it usually goes. But he figured maybe she was in the back. So he went around to the back of the house and through a window, he could see her dog walking around back and forth, but she wasn't answering her phone. She didn't answer the door. And so her son immediately knew something was wrong. He uh, then noticed a window was open and the screen was removed and the flower bed directly underneath the window was trampled. So he called his wife and then he called 911. Police came over fairly quickly and an officer actually climbed through the window to get in and discovered her body in her bedroom. So he knew it was a, a complex murder scene immediately. Um, didn't let her son, Jason, come inside. When the crime scene investigators came in, they discovered fingerprints on that window, which was the obvious point of entry, as well as fingerprints on another window that appeared to have been tampered with. So they have this fingerprint evidence, and then they also check for DNA. They they scrape Susan Spiller's fingernails, which is uh, common in a, in a struggle that uh, DNA will be trapped under the victim's fingernails. And they run it through their system, and there's no match. No match on the fingernail, no match on the DNA. And so police did a number of interviews around the neighborhood, but Susan Spiller didn't have any enemies. And so they were really kind of stuck, and they didn't have anywhere else to turn at that point. And it wasn't, my understanding is it wasn't until years later, four years later, that finally there was a match on that DNA. So four years later, in 2019, all of a sudden there's a hit. And it's actually, first it was it was a hit on the, the fingerprints. And that's because somebody was just arrested. It was a, a, a young man who was uh, 18 at that point. And he was arrested on a weapons charge. His name was Demetrius Wynn, and he was arrested on, on a weapons charge. What, what had happened was he flashed a gun at somebody, and uh, that person went to the police. Um, when they came back with the reporting party, Demetrius said something along the lines of, are you snitching? And uh, it turned out that he had an air pistol on him that looked like a real gun. And so he was arrested on that, and when they fingerprinted him, his fingerprints went into the system, and then it, it rang the bell that there was a match on the Spiller case. Well, the original investigators were still with the department four years later, and they recognized this as being Susan Spiller's next-door neighbor. He was only 14 at the time. He lived next door with his family, his mom, a brother, a sister, and a, a live-in boyfriend of the mother. And police remembered that they did talk to him briefly at the time, but I mean, he was a 14 year old sitting there and they mostly talked with the mom, but there were some red flags even back then. When they initially talked to Demetrius Wynn's mom back in 2015, she gave them the names and date of birth of her daughter, her other son, but for Demetrius, she told police his name was Demetrius Williams, and she gave a false date of birth. And so this was all of a sudden very suspicious in hindsight 
why would she give uh, this false information about him? He has this fingerprint match. They go ahead and get a search warrant to take his DNA, and then they sit down and do an interview with him from jail, actually. And they slide a, a picture of Susan Spiller across the table, and he tells them, I don't know who that lady is. I have no idea who that is. And they show him a picture of her bright blue house that he lived across from for two years. And he said, I don't know what that is. I don't recognize that house. And so police are obviously very suspicious. Um, and from there, they run the DNA. The DNA comes back as a match, a Y chromosomal match, which means that it can be narrowed down to a male in Demetrius Wynn's family. So at the time, did investigators determine if Demetrius had had much of any interaction with Susan Spiller over the years? I mean, they must have known each other living next door, right? Yeah, they definitely gave police the impression that they all got along, and Susan Spiller was um, you know, very friendly with children in the neighborhood. She let the kids pet her dog and walk her dog. And um, so it seemed that Demetrius Wynn and Susan Spiller definitely knew each other and had what seemed like a friendly relationship. They did learn a few that there were some disputes between Wynn's family and Susan Spiller. Uh, they had complained to other people about Susan Spiller's dog pooping in their yard, but really not much more than that. Police say after four years of searching for a suspect, the break came when an 18-year-old was arrested on an unrelated case. I am pleased to say that a suspect in this heinous crime has been identified, arrested, and charged. Lou, if I may uh, jump ahead to the trial. Demetrius Wynn went on trial for the murder of Susan Spiller just last month in March. It was a relatively short trial, but can you tell us a bit about what we heard in that trial, the testimony, and obviously the evidence that we've already covered a bit was pivotal, right? Yeah, you know, I, I was the only reporter in there for the majority of the trial. The first thing that stuck out to me was I, I didn't. I thought the DNA match was a little more conclusive than just narrowing it down to a male in Wynn's family. And at the very beginning of the trial, I saw that as a potential problem with a jury because I, I knew they don't have a murder weapon and they don't have a strong motive. Um, I forgot to mention that the only thing that was missing from Susan Spiller's house was her cell phone. And during the trial, as the evidence came out, we learned that she had her purse sitting out right in the open and iPad was sitting out right in the open. So if this was a random burglary, they probably would have stolen that stuff in addition to the cell phone. And that if, if that was the motive for uh, if it was a, a burglary gone wrong where they killed Susan Spiller in the process. And so it was odd that this cell phone was missing, had never been recovered. Uh, Demetrius Wynn doesn't seem to have any sort of strong alibi or sorry, doesn't have any sort of strong motive. Um, and he was only 14 at the time. They certified him as an adult so that he could be tried as an adult uh, in adult court. But the fingerprint evidence was so strong. The DNA evidence was strong enough. And then all the other incriminating factors, such as Demetrius Wynn pretending that he didn't know who Susan Spiller was, um, not recognizing the house, uh, the mom seeming to cover for him to some extent, really seemed like a mountain of evidence. And then Demetrius Wynn got on the witness stand to testify in his own defense, and it was absolutely disastrous for him. Tell us a little bit about 
what what took place, what he was asked, and and why that was the case. Well, you know, they always say that it's a risk for a defendant to to testify, and this is this was Exhibit A. Why that is. His attorney, in direct examination, had to ask a lot of these tough questions, like it, trying to figure out you know, why his fingerprints might be over there. And so Demetrius Wynn testified that he had been in the house. He'd been all over in the house to use the bathroom. You know, She was very uh, friendly. If he was playing basketball outside, he could come in and use the bathroom in her house, which is kind of odd because he lived right next door. So why wouldn't he just go use the bathroom in his house? But it, it just seemed like they were trying to lay a lot of uh, groundwork for for some a plausible explanation uh, why that might have been. And then they also he also testified that he had a knee injury prior to July of 2015, where he had a torn ACL and had surgery. And so, trying to lay the groundwork for uh, that he couldn't have climbed through that window. But then they didn't provide any medical evidence whatsoever, no medical records that he had had this surgery. And so they were just left to take Demetrius Wynn's word for it. And then once cross-examination began, the prosecutor was really brilliant. His first question was, Mr. Wynn, those are your fingerprints on the window, aren't they? And he said, yes, sir. And they said, Mr. Wynn, that is your DNA under Susan Spiller's fingernails, isn't it? And he answered, yes, sir. So just in those two questions... He admitted, he took away any doubt that existed with that forensic evidence. And then the, the prosecutor went on to basically show the jury that the ACL thing is implausible because he had also testified that he was helping his mom run errands and helping Susan Spiller in the garden. She she basically ran this community garden in the neighborhood. And all these other things that he allegedly was doing without any mobility issues, but then when it came to you know, having to climb through a window to commit a crime, then he tried to make it sound like that was impossible. And so they really deflated his any, any sort of story that he had established that could have helped him. And then he started to change his stories mid-testimony mid during cross-examination. And he said, uh, I never said it was my DNA. And the prosecutor said, you just said that two minutes ago. And so it was, uh, I mean, to anyone who was in that courtroom, the you knew that his testimony was the nail in the coffin for his case. The jury returned relatively quickly, less than a day, I believe, with their verdict. Explain to us what they found him guilty of. It wasn't all the charges, right? Well, there were two charges, and it was to me, it was kind of the prosecution covering their bases. There was the traditional charge of second degree murder, which in Minnesota is intentional murder, but not they don't have to prove premeditation. And so that's what most murder charges are charged as, is second-degree murder in Minnesota. The jury found him guilty of that. It did take them longer than than I would have expected. And um, I, I did interview a juror afterwards, and they told me that there was one person that, you know, just didn't fully understand what beyond a reasonable doubt meant because they kept coming up with, uh, you know, like a, a pie-in-the-sky scenario of, well, what if this happened? Then maybe that could explain this evidence. But then when they passed a note to the judge saying they were having trouble and the judge told, you know, reread the instructions. And once that juror, you know, understood to just take into account the evidence that was presented in the trial, then they agreed that beyond a reasonable doubt, Demetrius Wynn was guilty. There was another charge, which uh, is what is commonly known as felony murder, which means that a murder was committed in the commission of a felony. 
in this case would be burglary, which, you know, in the, under the circumstances, you could understand that charge. But there are several elements that needed to be proven within it. And one of those is theft, that Demetrius Wynn committed theft. And the jury just got stuck on that one element because the only thing missing was the cell phone. The cell phone was never recovered. So there really isn't proof beyond a reasonable doubt that Demetrius Wynn committed theft. And so they pretty quickly actually decided that they were going to go not guilty on that one. They still believe that he broke in the house. They still believe that he killed Susan Spiller. But because of that one element of that crime, they couldn't go guilty on that one. Demetrius Wynn will be sentenced at a later date. I understand when the verdict was read, there was an emotional reaction in the courtroom. Yeah, his family uh, was there supporting him the entire time. And they screamed out, uh, you know, and swore and, and, and down in the courthouse lobby where the television cameras were, they were yelling and swearing at the cameras as well. My son, 14 years on old, and y'all and gonna come back with a verdict on one count and not on the other one? Y'all bogus. So they, I, I mean, you have to imagine that throughout this case, there were plea offers that were given. Um, they never accepted that, you know, in, at 21 years old. Now, Demetrius, when he's been in jail since he was 18 now, you know, I'm, they, they still are, you know, acting as if he's a child to a certain extent, making decisions for him. Um, they just, they, they thought that they fired one attorney and hired a different defense attorney. They thought that it would go to trial and he would be found not guilty. So they were caught off guard by that. Do we have an idea of how long he could spend behind bars? Minnesota has pretty strict sentencing guidelines, so it's a judge just can't, uh, you know, out of nowhere give life in prison, for example. Um, Second-degree murder carries up to 40 years in prison, but under the guidelines, he would see about 25 years. The judge has discretion uh, to go up to 30 years in this case, and the prosecution is going to be pushing for that 30-year sentence, and I would be surprised if it's any less than that. Such a sad and tragic case. I mean, you have 68-year-old Susan Spiller, who is killed. And then you have Demetrius Wynn, who was just 14 when he, for whatever reason, and we don't really have a motive, made the decision according to the jury and according to the court system to kill her and really no no real understanding of why this all took place. Yeah. Susan Spiller's family is, you know, satisfied that they got justice in this case. They were there for the entire trial, her son, Jason, and his wife, and then a few of her close friends were there as well. Uh, Susan Spiller's daughter and uh, or her daughter-in-law told me that she thinks that Susan would have lived to be 100 if this didn't happen. She was such an active lady, um, such a vibrant person, and tragically, she never got a chance to meet her two youngest grandchildren because of this. She had uh, one son, Jason. And he went on to have six children of his own. And uh, she was the prototypical grandma that watched the kids a couple days a week. And that was all taken away. And probably the, the most frustrating thing is that to this point, they don't know why. You know, it, did Demetrius win uh, going there out of curiosity or did he go in there specifically to kill? Like, we just, we don't know. And unless he changes his tune and gives some answers at sentencing, we might never know. Lou, thanks for talking to us about this case. I should mention that some of our listeners might recognize your voice. Of course, we worked with you, it's been a few years now, on uh, 88 Days, the Jamie Kloss story, and uh, just a really 
amazing podcast that you put so much effort and work into. And I'm sure, you know, we still hear people talking about that case and that podcast as well. You must, I, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. That was, uh, that was uh, one of the most emotional and uh, biggest cases I've ever covered with twists and turns all along the way. And I continue to cover crime in our region here. And I'm happy to talk with you. You've been listening to The Daily Crime, a podcast from Vault Studios. Be sure to check out our other podcasts, including Bardstown, The Officer's Wife, and our weekly show, True Crime Chronicles. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson.